All right, please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 8. We continue our way through the gospel of Luke. And today we come to, well, really just a, a unique and bizarre story. Uh, we have seen troubled people in this gospel before, but the guy in our story is not just any old troubled person. This guy is completely out of his mind. He lives in the tombs among the dead. He terrorizes the neighborhood. And we've seen demon possession in this gospel before, but this isn't just one demon possessing this guy, as if that weren't bad enough. It's many demons. And we've seen exorcisms in this gospel before, this is not your run-of-the-mill exorcism, if such a thing could exist. This exorcism goes hand-in-hand hand with thousands of pigs simultaneously jumping off a cliff and drowning. Like, by any standard, this is just a bizarre story. But remember, it's not in our Bibles because it's just entertaining or fascinating or interesting, though it is all of those things. It's in our Bibles that we might learn more about Jesus and the salvation that he accomplished, and then how we as his people might live then for his glory. And so to that end, right, if this is going to be anything more than just an interesting story to us, we're going to need God's help. And so let's start by praying together. Father, last Sunday we were reminded from your word that the greatest pursuit that our souls can engage in is to pursue you in your presence. And we acknowledge that the primary means that you have given us to pursue you is through the Holy Spirit in your word. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to do exactly that right now, that the Spirit would work in the hearts of your people so that the word that we read and hear and study this morning would truly change our hearts. We cannot do that on our own, in our own strength, and our own wisdom. And so we ask that you would work that in us, and give us ears to hear, that we might glorify you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord, and this is the word that God has for you this morning. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there, he, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, 
Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So let's start by just thinking through the narrative itself. Like, what exactly is going on here? I think oftentimes it's helpful, especially when you're dealing with a longer narrative like this, to, uh, to have some markers, some natural divisions, so that we can kind of better follow the arc of the story. And so, with regard to this particular narrative, we'll divide it into six parts. And so if you're taking notes, here are your six points for this morning. Uh, they're all bought, brought to you by the letter D. We've got the destination, the demoniac, the deliverance, the difference, the departure, and the denial. It's a gift. What can I say? Point number one, the destination. Remember that the passage that comes right before ours is the story of the calming of the storm. This is just a recap. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Lake of Genesaret. Uh, they're on their boats. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this violent tempest on the water. Uh, the wind is wreaking havoc. The boat is taking on water. Uh, the storm is seemingly going to overwhelm them. The disciples go into panic. They wake Jesus up. Master, master, we are perishing. And so Jesus gets up and he rebukes the waves. He rebukes the winds. And just like that, there is this complete calm where just moments before there was this absolute chaos. And that story, you'll remember, ends with the disciples terrified. Not of the winds and the waves because those are gone now. No, they're afraid of the one who can still the winds and the waves just by his word. Well, this is very God of very God. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Well, that narrative ends in verse 25 and you'll notice that it leaves Jesus and the disciples just kind of in the middle of the lake. And so Luke starts off this narrative, look at verse 26, by telling us their destination, where they ended up. Then they sail to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So picture in your mind again the Sea of Galilee, this huge body of water. Uh, Jesus and the disciples, they, they start up here on the northwest shore by the city of Capernaum. And they sail eastwards, and that's where they kind of meet this storm, this tempest. And now they reach their final destination on the eastern shore of the same lake of the country of the Gerasenes. And notice how Luke throws in that little phrase there at the end, which is opposite Galilee. 
Now, in one sense, that is a geographical marker, right? Galilee is this region that kind of spans the west side of the lake and the country of the Gerasenes that's on the east side of the lake. And so, geographically, yes, the country of the Gerasenes is opposite Galilee. But it's also opposite Galilee in another sense because Galilee... So far, all of Jesus' ministry recorded in this gospel has taken place in the region of Galilee. Uh, Even though it did have a significant Gentile population, Jesus' ministry thus far has been primarily to a Jewish audience. But now, he makes his way to the eastern side of the lake. We're on a completely different turf now. Now Jesus finds himself in Gentile lands. There's probably no Jews there. There's probably not a synagogue there. This is Gentile territory. You've probably already noticed that there are pigs in this story. Not like stray pigs running around, but this is a herd of pigs with herdsmen who are in charge of feeding and caring for the pigs. And listen, nobody raises 2,000 pigs to keep them as pets. This isn't like Charlotte's Web. Right? They're obviously being raised for food. You would never see that in Jewish lands. Because for the Jews, God's law specifically states that pigs are unclean to eat. And so not surprisingly, right, this is the only place in the New Testament in which we see actual pigs. Because the Jewish people would have nothing to do with unclean pigs. All that to say... This isn't exactly the destination to which you would expect Jesus to go. Into Gentile lands, among pagan idolaters who live outside of Jewish customs. Now to us, of course, almost all of us would be Gentiles, right? The, The idea that the good news of Jesus goes forth to the Gentiles, that's not a shock to us at all because We've read the book of Acts, right? We've read the New Testament epistles. Uh, We ourselves have come to believe uh, this gospel. But to a first century Jew, to the disciples who are with Jesus as they arrive at their destination, this had to have been a shock. Uh, What do we Jews have to do with those Gentiles? But friends, this is This is no accident. This isn't like they got lost on the lake. Peter, I told you we should have taken a right over there and now we're over here in the land of the Gentiles. What are we going to do? No, this is exactly according to plan. According to the sovereign purpose of the one who ordains all things. Because as we're going to see in the rest of the narrative, there's a disciple to be made here, even in this foreign land. Or to put it in the context of the parable at the beginning of the chapter that's really framed the entire chapter, there's good soil here. Even in this seemingly barren land, there is good soil here. And so the sower has come all the way across the lake to scatter the seed there, that it might bear abundant fruit. Point number one, consider the destination. Which brings us to point number two, the demoniac. Demoniac just refers to a demon-possessed person. So here in our narrative, we meet arguably the 
most demoniac of demoniacs in the New Testament. Like, there is good soil here in the country of the Gerasenes, but let's just say it's not where you would think to look. As you read through the, the Gospels and you read about the life and ministry of Jesus, you see that he interacts with a lot of people who are just in really bad situations. And so you've got the deaf, you've got the blind, you've got the lame, and the diseased, and the leprous. And it's at least subje- it's, it's subjective to say that, you know, this is worse than this, or this is better off than this, comparing kind of miserable conditions there. But this demoniac, right, this guy, he's got to be up there with some of the most like, tragic and miserable, seemingly hopeless characters that we meet in the Gospels. I mean, just look at the amount of ink that Luke devotes to describing this man's miserable condition. Verse 27, for a long time, he had worn no clothes, right? That's not normal. He's clearly not in his right mind. And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. You look at the beginning of the verse, you see that at one time he had lived in the city. He was a man from the city. But now he's not living in the city. He's not living in a house. He's not living in normal human society by any means. No, he is literally making his dwelling among the dead. And this isn't a new thing. It's not like he just got afflicted with this right before Jesus came or, I've been dealing with this for a couple of days. Hey, listen, it's just a phase. He's going to snap out of it. Now look at the beginning of the verse. He's had these demons for a long time. Exact duration? We don't know. But he has been in this miserable, wretched state for quite a while. But Luke's not done in describing this demoniac's misery. Look at verse 29, the little parenthetical statement there in the ESV. For many a time, it, referring to the demons, had seized him. And so he was so out of control, he was so wild that the people of the city, they would try to bind him, they would try to restrain him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But apparently his demonic possession was characterized by some kind of superhuman strength, and so he would just break them right off. Picture Samson and the bowstrings, just snapping them right off. Matthew adds this detail that he was so fierce that nobody could pass his way. He terrorized the neighborhood. Like, guarantee you, nobody is going for a walk through that graveyard. And then look at this detail that Mark adds in Mark 5.5. 5. Night and day, among the tombs, on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And so not only is he a danger to everybody who would come that way, he's even a danger to himself. And so the way the gospel writers describe this man, he's almost like a wild, rabid animal that can't be restrained. Right? He is living completely below what should be the dignity of a human being created in God's image. This is one of the most miserable depictions in the entire New Testament. Like I said earlier, we've seen demon-possessed people before. Remember back in Luke chapter 4, the, the guy in the synagogue at Capernaum? But that guy, I mean, if you think about it, 
That guy was able to function in society to the point that he was allowed to participate in a synagogue worship service. But this demoniac in Luke 8, I mean, he shows up to any gathering of the Gerasenes. Like, I guarantee you, everybody is fleeing for their life. Point number two, the demoniac. That brings us to point number three, the deliverance. So you've got Jesus stepping off this boat. He's coming into the region that this demoniac has terrorized for a long time. And so it almost seems like Luke is setting up this massive showdown by the shore. Right? You've got Jesus and you've got the demoniac. You've got good and you've got evil. And they're on the demoniac's home turf. Maybe, you think, well, in addition to home field advantage, there's also strength in numbers for this demoniac. His name is Legion, and Luke tells us why in verse 30, for many demons had entered him. Legion is a military term. A Roman legion would have been about 6,000 soldiers. Now, does that mean that there were literally 6,000 demons in this man? Maybe, but maybe not. We don't know. You remember back in the beginning of the chapter, uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 2, we're told that Mary Magdalene had seven demons. The fact that Luke brings up the number of demons again in the same chapter leads me to believe that this man had more than seven demons, right? more than Mary Magdalene. We also know, Mark tells us, that there were about 2,000 pigs that run off the cliff. And so maybe you say, well, assuming the, the demon-to-pig ratio is like one-to-one, one, maybe there's about 2,000 demons. Again, can't be sure. So you say, well, wait a minute. Like You've been studying this passage all week, and your conclusion is that it might be 6,000, probably more than seven, and it might be 2,000. Yeah. I have no idea, right? And I think maybe the takeaway here is that we ought not to get too bogged down in the details that the Bible doesn't provide. But, but let's just call it thousands, right? Thousands of demons. And so you've got Jesus and you've got legion. This is one versus thousands. You think about the most, like, unrealistic kung fu movie battle scene. Uh, even that would not pit one guy against thousands, that wouldn't be a fair fight. And that's exactly the case here. It's not a fair fight at all, but it's the demons who don't stand a chance. And Luke illustrates that for us throughout this narrative, that the demons don't stand a chance. It's clear who has the upper hand the entire time. Look at how the narrative starts. Verse 28, the demoniac cries out and he falls down before Jesus. He prostrates himself before Jesus. This is not an act of reverent worship. This is the demons acknowledging that though they may hate him and though they may try to oppose him, at the end of the day, he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is not a fair fight. Jesus completely has the upper hand. Look what the demoniac says. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, 
son of the most high God. You remember our last story, the calming of the storm, how that story ended with this rhetorical question? And I think Luke intentionally does that so that we, the reader, would carry forth this question even as we continue to read. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Well, here now is your answer. Just three verses later in the same gospel, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Jesus, son of the most high God. That's who it is. But you'll notice that it's not a disciple. It's not one of the 12 who supplies this correct answer. It's the demons. It's not the first time in this gospel that we've seen the spiritual forces of evil confess that truth. You remember the devil at the temptation? Since you are the son of God. The demons in Luke 4.41, demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. And so even as the crowds and even the disciples, even the twelve, remain largely confused. The spiritual forces of evil, like the demons here, they know exactly who they're dealing with. And they realize that they're completely overmatched. They don't stand a chance because this is the son of the most high God. Again, this is not a fair fight. We also see that in how the demons repeatedly beg Jesus throughout this story. Did you notice that? Like, begging is obviously something that the weaker party does with relation to the stronger party. And so verse 28, it's the demons who are begging Jesus, I beg you, do not torment me. In verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Abyss is a Greek word that describes a a bottomless pit, and so that refers to their place of judgment. Uh, Please don't send us there yet. Then verse 32, there it is again. They begged him to let them enter that large herd of pigs over there. And on the flip side of all that begging that the demons are doing is the repeated emphasis on Jesus' authority throughout this narrative. Verse 29, he had commanded the unclean spirit, to come out of the man. Verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And then maybe most telling, after they beg Jesus about going into the pigs, look at the end of verse 32, he gave them permission. It is pretty clear throughout the telling of this narrative that this is not two evenly matched powers. No, Jesus is in complete control. The demons are in complete submission throughout the whole narrative. And so just like Jesus shows complete authority and power over the winds and the waves in the calming of the storm, so here he shows complete authority and power over even the demons. Complete authority over the natural realm, complete authority over the spiritual realm. So just like he says to the waves, so he says to the demons, 
Thus far you shall come, and no farther. Brothers and sisters, don't overlook this point that is so spectacularly emphasized and illustrated in this narrative that Jesus completely rules over every demonic force. Just consider what would happen if that statement were not true. We would be completely hopeless and helpless against all the evil forces who seek to work us woe. But friends, our, our God is a mighty fortress. And so his people can find refuge, safe refuge in him, even from all the demonic realm. Point number three, the deliverance. But we're not done with this point yet. Because Jesus, right, with his complete authority over the demons, he doesn't just cast them out generally, like we've seen him do before. He does something unique, unparalleled. Right? At their request, he grants the demons permission to go into a herd of pigs. Verse 33, the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, if we're honest, that raises a lot of questions. For example, how exactly does a demon enter a pig? And why did the demons ask to enter the pigs? Is it just because they happen to be there? Like if there was just like a bunch of hippos there, would they have asked to go into the hippos? Or is there something special and specific about pigs? Does it have anything to do with the fact that Jews would consider the pigs to be unclean? Was this a one-time thing? Or is like porcelain demon possession a, a regular thing? Very importantly, should any of this affect how I think about bacon, pepperoni pizza, and pork chops? I don't think so. But should it? I don't know. Why do all the pigs jump into the sea once the demons go into them? Like, did the demons direct that? Maybe they wanted the people of the region to be mad at Jesus. Or was it just that the pigs lost control? And this is what I'm most curious about. What happened to the demons when the pigs ran, ran into the sea and, and the pigs drowned? The pigs died, so what happened to the demons? You can get a lot of questions here, and Luke doesn't really answer any of those for us. And so we need to just stick with what we know, which is this. The demons used to be in the man. They were sent into the pigs. The pigs jump off the cliff, visibly demonstrating that the demons indeed have gone into them. And so you've got this undeniable, visible demonstration of the fact that this man, who was once possessed by demons, is now free. That point number three, the deliverance, had really happened. Which brings us now to point number four, the difference. I want you to notice the difference in the formerly demon-possessed man as a result of this deliverance. Verse 35, Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And so this man used to walk around without clothes. Verse 27, for a long time he had worn no clothes, but now he is clothed. He used to be out of his mind and uncontrollable. They couldn't even bind him with shackles. But now he's described as being in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was once described, look at verse 27, as a man from the city who had demons. Now he is described, verse 35, as the man from whom the demons had gone. But the difference is even more stark than that. Because it's not just that he was healed, and so now he's no longer tormented by demons. It's also that he is now a true disciple of Jesus. Look at that phrase in verse 35. This man is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, that's more than just describing like where he is locationally. It was a phrase that was used to describe the disciple-master relationship. Disciples would sit at their master's feet and listen to their teaching. And so Paul, for example, describes himself as educated at the feet of Gamaliel, meaning that he was Gamaliel's disciple. Or look at how Luke, right, same author, same gospel, how Luke later describes Mary, Luke 10.39, Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That's exactly what this former demoniac is now doing. He is sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. Point number four, the difference. He was once possessed by these demons, and now he belongs to Christ as a true disciple. Brings us to point number five, the departure. I think it's always an interesting exercise when you're studying narratives like this to try and see the narrative from the point of view of some of the different characters. And so in this story, let's just consider the herdsmen. These guys, they're, they're in charge of the pigs. They themselves don't own the pigs. They take care of the pigs for the pigs' owners. So, you know, you're just chilling with the pigs, doing whatever pig herdsmen do, like feeding them, walking them, whatever it is. All of a sudden, you hear some commotion from over there. You look over, and it's like, oh, well, it's just that guy again. He's always causing trouble. But he's talking to someone who you've never seen before. And then, boom, like all of a sudden, the 2,000 pigs that you and your friends have been taking care of and feeding, they start going wild. They make a mad dash for the edge of the cliff, and they jump over. And your first thought is, oh, man. I am in so much trouble. How in the world am I going to explain this to the owners? I mean, can you imagine the conversation? Oh, no, sir, you don't understand. We we were doing our jobs. It's just that, well, you know, these demons previously possessed this, the naked guy who lives by the tombs, and then they all came into our pigs, and that's why they ran into the water, and they died. Like, oh, okay, well, why don't you say so? No, unlikely. And so the herdsmen panic. 
Look at verse 34. They fled. They ran as fast as they could, and they told in the city and in the country, basically anybody who's going to listen, they're trying to get as many witnesses as they can, maybe even the owners themselves, to come and see this for themselves. So all these people come. They assess the scene. What just happened? What is their response? They were afraid. Verse 37, all the people, all the people, right? This is everybody from the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. Seized with great fear because they saw with their own eyes what happened to that man, right? The man who was clearly formerly demon-possessed, well, now he's in his right mind. And according to all the eyewitnesses, it was Jesus who did that. Well, if Jesus has this absolute power over the demonic realm, even this legion of demons, well, then what does that make him? Who is this man who can do such things? Forget the healing. Forget the goodness and the, the mercy that he's just displayed. They're terrified of him. They want him out. You might remember the point I made last time when we talked about the calming of the storm. That Luke doesn't mention the fear of the disciples until after Jesus calms the storm. Surely they were afraid before. That's evidence in their panic. Master, master, we are perishing. But Luke doesn't point out their fear until after Jesus calms the storm when all was at peace and calm and serene. We see Luke's up to his old tricks here again. He doesn't say anything about the fear of the people before the demoniac is healed. I mean, listen, in terms of people to be scared of, right? This guy is right at the top of the list. He is out of his mind. He can't be restrained. You can't even put chains and shackles on this man. He's naked. He lives by the tombs. Like, you would be terrified if you saw him coming in your direction. But Luke reserves those terms. Afraid, in verse 35. Seized with great fear, in verse 36. To point out the people's great fear after the man was healed. When all was seemingly calm and at peace and serene. These people are unable to deal with what they couldn't understand. Even as they recognize that this is no ordinary man standing among them. And so they ask him to leave. And what a sad sentence, right? Tucked away at the end of verse 37. So he got into the boat and returned. They asked the Savior of the world to leave. And he left. These poor sinners had no idea what they were doing. Point number five, the departure. Well, that brings us to point number six, the denial. We're not quite done yet because there's one little detail that Luke kind of throws in there. He comes back to this former demoniac, look at verse 38. He begged Jesus that he might be with him. He wants to go with Jesus back across the Sea of Galilee with the rest of the disciples. He just wants to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. But, perhaps surprisingly, 
Jesus denies his request. Which I think is particularly interesting in the context of this narrative because did you notice that Jesus accommodates all of the other requests that are made of him in this narrative? Verse 32, the demons begged him to let, him, let them enter the pigs. And as we know, Jesus answered that request. He granted them permission to go into the pigs. And then verse 37, the people asked him to leave. Again, Jesus answers that request. He gets into the boat and he leaves. But now when the one faithful disciple in the story begs Jesus that he might be with him, this is the only request that Jesus denies. There's an application point here for us, isn't there? That sometimes God, in his all-wise sovereignty and goodness, he denies our requests. And he says no to our prayers. And here's the thing. It's not about how sincere we are in asking or even how noble we might think the request is. I mean, this guy's request is as sincere as can be. And his request that he go with Jesus? Like, how much more noble can a request be? Sometimes we have a sincere and noble plans for the kingdom of God. I want to go into the ministry. I want to be a missionary. I want to disciple this younger brother in the faith. I want to start this new Bible study in my workplace. But then through whatever means, often is providence, God says no. And that can crush us. We just don't understand why God would not give the green light to our awesome plans to glorify him. But that's when we need to pause and ask ourselves, well, who knows better what will glorify him? And who am I to say which requests he ought to answer and which requests he ought not to? In this case... Jesus denies the request precisely because he's got something else in store for this man, something better to glorify him. He gives the man a mission. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Now let's give this man some credit here. In this denial, he doesn't complain, he doesn't argue. He doesn't get bitter that his request was denied. We see none of that in this narrative. Instead, we see obedience. Which makes sense because the good soil ought to be marked by obedience. Verse 39. He went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so just like that, he becomes the first person in the gospel commissioned by Jesus, sent out by Jesus to proclaim his name. And so even though Jesus denied his request, well, through his obedience, this man was exactly where he needed to be. Right? He was in the will of God, telling his own countrymen, those who had previously rejected Jesus, those who would, who would have otherwise not had a gospel witness, he's telling them about the wonderful news of the Savior. 
But friends, let's not get so focused on the man that we miss the wonderful mercy of Jesus here. His mercy is not only to the man, his mercy is also to the people. Because consider these people, the people of the country of the Gerasenes, they had flat out rejected Jesus. They asked him to leave. They wanted nothing to do with him. And yet Jesus does not leave them without a witness. What kindness and mercy. I mean, just imagine, just imagine if Jesus had cut off every witness in your life the very first time that you rejected the gospel. Where would you be? Our Savior is a merciful Savior who goes after his lost sheep, who always secures his elect. A Savior who has come to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus sends them an evangelist, one of their very own, to proclaim his name among them. Point number six, the denial. So that's our narrative. The destination, the demoniac, the deliverance. We saw the difference, the departure, and the denial. And maybe you picked up on this while we went through the story, but this story just wonderfully paints for us a picture of the salvation of souls that Jesus came to accomplish. And so at the end here, let me just give you three quick takeaways about how this story points us to the larger biblical narrative on salvation. So three takeaways. Takeaway number one is that natural man rejects Jesus. Natural man rejects Jesus. We've seen this over and over again, right? That unless God grants eyes to see and ears to hear, natural man will reject Jesus because natural man is spiritually dead. And in this particular narrative, we see it most clearly in the people of the region. Look at how Luke draws our attention to the fact that these people, the people of the region, they see, verse 35, they see. Then people went out to see what had happened. And so they see the formerly demon-possessed man in his right mind with their own eyes. And they not only see, but they also hear. Look at verse 36. Those who had seen it told them. And so they hear how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And so they see and they hear, but in their natural state, apart from God's grace, they don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. So they fear the one who is in their presence. Right? They recognize that he's no ordinary man. But instead of that fear driving them to seek his mercy, well, natural man rejects Jesus and so they drive him out. Which brings us to takeaway number two, which is that salvation is the work of God. Right? If natural man rejects Jesus and the salvation that he offers, then it must be the case that salvation is a work of God. Since man can do nothing, man will just reject Jesus. It must be the case that salvation is, from beginning to end, God's sovereign work to bring a dead sinner to life. We see that so clearly 
and the demoniac in our story. The demoniac doesn't seek God for salvation. The demoniac doesn't pursue after Jesus. The demoniac doesn't ask Jesus to enter his heart. No, Jesus does everything from the beginning to the end, right? It's Jesus who crosses the sea to seek out this one man. It's Jesus who steps off that boat. It's Jesus who confronts the demoniac with his power and his authority over the demonic realm. And it's Jesus who casts the demons into the pigs. The man literally does nothing because salvation belongs to the Lord. Now maybe you think, well, this is kind of an extreme case here. This man's demon-possessed. True. But the scriptures say that all sinners who are spiritually dead, all who are not believers, are following the prince of the power of the air, referring to the devil. And that even if you're not demon-possessed like this man, the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, that's the devil, well, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so with any salvation, with any person, again, since natural man rejects Jesus, with any person, whether it's this demoniac or... It's a child who grew up in a Christian home, who kind of grew up in the church. Salvation is a wholesale transference of kingdoms. Right? From darkness into marvelous light. From the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of God. From being children of wrath to sons of God. And that's the work that only God can do. To give life to that spiritually dead sinner. To replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. To take someone who would otherwise naturally reject Jesus and grant them the faith and repentance they need to be saved. Well, that brings us to point number three, or takeaway number three, which is that the worst sinners can be saved. If we were to, like, I don't know, pass out surveys in the garrisons and ask people, like, who is the least likely person to be saved? I don't know. I'm assuming this guy is at the top of that list. And yet it's him who Jesus not only saves, but then calls to be a missionary. Like, at first glance, that's kind of shocking. But see, this is where our theology is important because if we really believe what the Bible teaches, then this makes sense. Because natural man, again, it doesn't matter how outwardly kind and friendly they are. It doesn't matter if they're good, productive members of society or if they live by themselves uh, without clothes in the tombs. All unsaved people are spiritually dead and thus reject Jesus. And so salvation, from beginning to end, is the work of God. Right? He takes spiritually dead sinners, wherever you are on the spectrum, he takes spiritually dead sinners, and he works the miracle of regeneration in their hearts so that they might believe, so that they might be saved. Well, if all of that is true, then it stands to reason that Almighty God, who can do whatever he pleases, he can save anybody. You, you compare the, the kid who grew up in church to the garrison demoniac. 
Uh, Certainly there are spiritual privileges that this kid grew up in church. He's been exposed to. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, right? Spiritually dead is spiritually dead. The same miracle of regeneration is required in both. An almighty, merciful God can work that miracle of regeneration in either. Takeaway number three, the worst sinners can be saved. And so two thoughts here as, a, as we close. First, the fact that God can save the worst of sinners well means that we, in our evangelism, ought never to lose heart. Maybe you've got a coworker who you think, there's no way that person would ever get saved. Maybe there's that family member that you've largely given up on because they've rejected the gospel so many times and it's like their heart is so hard. I'd rather go on a picnic with this demoniac than share the gospel with, with that family member again. Or maybe there's that person who's drifted so far away from church and the things of God you just think they're a completely lost cause, right? They're, they're living among the tombs, so to speak. But again, if we believe what we say we believe, and what this narrative so powerfully illustrates, well, friends, we ought never to lose heart. Right? He can bring the furthest prodigal back home. A second, maybe this morning you're you're sitting there in your seat and you're thinking, well, how can I be saved? With all the wicked things that I have done, how can a sinner as bad as me be saved? Well, dear friend, you need to know that Jesus is a friend of sinners. This man receives sinners. And yeah, you are bad. But you're not so bad that Jesus can't save you. Because it's for bad sinners like you, like me, like the garrison demoniac, that Jesus came, died on the cross, rose again, so that by repenting and believing, we too might be saved. And let me just throw this in there. If you want to know more about this gospel, like how you can be saved, how you can be right with a holy God, we've come on a good day. Uh, I want to invite you after the service to uh, join me in the chapel over there on the side. Uh, We're going to do a gospel presentation, uh, just basically how can one be saved from their sins? Who is God? Who is man? What did Christ come to do? How can I be saved? Uh, We're going to walk through all of that. We're going to start that around 1 p.m., Um, should take about an hour. And so uh, if you want to know more about this gospel, I I really do hope that that you will join us for that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we see in this story just the awesome power of your son, his authority and his rule over all things. And we also see in the story the compassionate mercy of your son. That even a man as wild and uncontrolled as this demoniac would come to sit at the feet of your son 
Father, we love you. We give you glory for this story. We pray, Lord, that this story would be more than just something that is interesting for us, but that it would truly transform our lives as we seek to live as your disciples. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.